In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. So, we're uh, never getting back to normal, are we? And I don't mean the pandemic will never end. It will, eventually. But it has become increasingly clear that whenever it does, there will be just far too much else going on to offer us any sense of the world that once was and for so long seemed that it would always be. More than two years ago now, things started changing quickly. They haven't stopped. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Cities across the United States remain in a state of high tension tonight as the country braces itself for another wave of protests over the death of George Floyd. U.S. Congress members were told to shelter in place as the protest situation tips out of control with Trump supporters breaching Capitol Hill. The main driver is the Delta variant, which spreads faster than the one in the third wave, resulting in more hospitalizations. Hey, Mike, well, we've just heard from the World Health Organization. They are now classifying this new variant as a variant of concern, and they've given it a name, Omicron, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. That convoy of trucks and thousands of protesters on foot here at Parliament Hill with one message. No, we're looking for freedom. The impacts of climate change are here, and they're getting worse. And according to a landmark United Nations report, not only are some of these impacts worse than previously known, some may already be irreversible. It is already Friday in Ukraine, and already we are hearing reports of explosions being heard in the capital as Russian forces continue their assault. For people my age and younger, I'm just past 40, we are living history in a way many believed we never would again. And I don't know about you, but not a huge fan of it so far. So today, a discussion of our new reality, of what it means to no longer be living with the kind of stability so many of us were lucky enough to take for granted. This is a friendly, relaxing Friday chat about the beginning of the end of the world. And if that sentence gives you a funny feeling, well... That's the point. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Elamine Abdel-Mahmoud is a culture writer at BuzzFeed News. He is the host of Pop Chat from CBC Podcasts. And his book, Son of Elsewhere, is available for pre-order right now. It comes out in May. Hey, Elamine. Hi, Jordan. How's it going? It's going well uh, for the end times, I guess. <laughs> that is kind of the vibe, hey? Is that like, if you're having a good day, you sort of have to like a little, give a bit of a context, be like, it's going well today, but also around us is a volcano all the time. So I, that's just how we communicate now. That's sort of the norm, I guess. 
I think the phrase "all things considered" gets a workout. Uh, yeah, I'll these see. times. I'll well, this see. is what you wrote about, so I'm really glad you could join us uh, to talk about um, what you called more than a vibe shift. We're going to get into the the meaning of the term vibe shift, but first, maybe start by telling me about that funny feeling, uh, the song by Bo Burnham. Right. So Bo Burnham put out a, a comedy special in 2021 called Inside. And Bo Burnham is sort of a comedian who does a lot of social commentary. And honestly, quite a bit of his comedy is not funny at all because it gets like into quite sort of the dark crevices of what it's like to be a human, to, you know, consume information online, exist online, etc. And the special is filled with all these like really big songs, songs about what a white woman's Instagram looks like. Is this or is it just a white woman, a white woman's Instagram? White songs about um, turning 30, like, and, and there's quite a bit of humor in those. But then you get to that funny feeling and it's this really quiet song. It's just Bo and his guitar. Stunning 8K resolution meditation. And he starts singing about um, a, a bit, what I would describe as maybe a bouquet of modern contradictions. Hmm. The idea of a stunning 8K resolution meditation app. The idea of the live action Lion King. The idea of the ocean at your fingertips. You know, mm-hmm. um, the ocean at your door, rather. The whole world at your fingertips, the ocean at your door. These things that when you think about them and you spend a bit longer thinking about them, they give you this weird, dystopian, disoriented kind of feeling. There it is again, that funny feeling. That funny feeling. Something is off. Not sure what that thing is, but when I think about the idea of a stunning 8K resolution meditation app, you're supposed to close your eyes when you are meditating um, and not look at the resolution of a meditation app. Um, It gives you this feeling of like, maybe we've gone too far. Maybe we don't really know what we're doing around here. Maybe we've sort of been severed from any notion of like, progress that we once had because we've lost the plot a little bit and i think about that song a lot um and i wanted to start with that song in the piece because i've been having that funny feeling a lot lately i've been having that funny feeling about so much of the news that i've been consuming like oh something bigger is off and i wanted to sort of spend a bit of time thinking about that that's how the piece was born do you have an example uh, you could give me quickly of when you had uh, that funny feeling recently? I can give you one uh, afterwards, but I'd like to hear yours. Oh my God, I'd love to hear yours first. You tell me. Go ahead. Um, this is a little while ago, but you remember at the beginning of the pandemic uh, when there were pictures, some of them photoshopped, some of them not, about sort of nature returning to various places. And yeah. oh my God, wasn't this going to be the very best thing for climate change and the return of uh, the wild world? And there were dolphins in the canals in Venice, allegedly, and all that kind of stuff. And remembering feeling yeah. happy about that, but also not. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really, I love that example. I love that example because those images were kind of disorienting in that way, right? Like they, like you look at those images and be like, uh, shouldn't this be the norm? Is it not the norm? What, what am I to do with, with all of this information? Yeah. I honestly, like the reason I'm having a hard time coming up with a singular example of the existence of that funny feeling is that it's kind of been constant, right? Like I take, for example, the coverage that we had of the trucker convoy here in Canada. Mm -hmm. When I think back to that period of time, I think, 
okay, yes, some of these views are genuinely awful and I would like to spend the least amount of time on them. But also at the same time, I feel like I've entered into an arena where politics is the number one thing I notice about a person. And I feel like I entered that involuntarily. Like I don't remember when that became something that we all kind of did. I'm as vaccinated as they come. I'm really big into my mask, but I feel like I've slipped into a pattern of judging people based on their behavior for the for the their behavior at the most scared they'd ever been. Hmm. And I think about that. I think about that maybe now it makes sense, but I'm not sure how I'm going to feel about that in 5 or 10 years. So I'm sort of starting to like project ahead about the morality I felt very comfortable with for the past year and a half or so and whether that's going to serve me. Whether that's going to serve me in 10 years or so. Am I going to look back at this period and say yeah, that was the right thing to do. And when you start to looking, thinking that way, thinking sort of like long-term and sort of the arc of history, um, I don't know. I think you get that dystopian, disoriented feeling. I think there's like a, there's a feeling of being a little bit unmoored from who you thought you were supposed to be. Like, I don't, right. I don't think of myself as that person. I don't think of myself as the person who th- jumps to thinking about politics first before everything else, but I've kind of become this person. I, and I don't know when that happened and, and, and I'm resentful about it, but I'm also like curious about it. So I, that's one of the things that gives me that funny feeling. One of the reasons we're having this conversation today, you know, more than two years after uh, the pandemic kind of shattered everything is that for a long time, I think, There'd been a lot of conversation among people um, from all parts of the political spectrum about, you know, what what we'll do when we get back to normal. And the prevailing feeling over the past several months, I think, has been, okay, well, we're never going back to that normal. Like, (laughs) we're just not. Do you remember uh, admitting fully to yourself? Because this is a big part of what your essay is about, admitting fully to yourself that 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 world is gone. We're not going back. Do you remember when that kind of fully hit you? I'm I'm still not sure it has. Hmm. I honestly don't. I'm still not sure it has in the sense that, like, I I wrote about it. I sort of came to the conclusion very firmly that we're not going back to that world. But the thing about grief is that it's a thing that comes in waves. And I think like I'm grieving that old world and what I knew about it and the ways that it sort of governed my life. Um, And so I'm still very much in the bargaining stage of that grief. Like I'm just beginning to walk down that road. I'm just beginning to walk down that road of like, you know, concerts are never going to be the same. You know, Um, I'm not sure that like going to a bar is ever going to be the same. I'm not sure that uh, just hanging out with friends at a large party is ever going to be the same. There's always going to be this, pre and post kind of conception of it. And in a very real way, it's like the greatest threat to us for two years was the breath of the people we loved. I think that changes you. I think that changes you in a very fundamental way. And I'm not even sure that we've sort of reckoned with how that changes you because I think that's going to be an ongoing process that really only begins when you start when you start to take steps towards normality and then find out that you can't really get there and i say this we're recording this on the day that um ontario's lifted mask mandates and there is a conception of that decision where you think okay that's the first step towards returning to normal but then there's the other conception of that decision where you go okay this is the first step towards i don't know what like i don't know what comes after this yeah all i know is that we're moving towards something entirely new and we're going to create a new set of rules for how to relate to one another but right now no one knows what they are and that's disquieting in its own way 
Why do you think that for people our age, and I am older than you here, so, um, and I know that because of your essay, and you said you were a year old, uh, I believe, when the Berlin Wall fell. I was uh, six, uh, seven, but yeah. But I think it's the same for most of us who grew up kind of in the late 80s and, and during the 90s, is that we're not really the type of people who can comprehend uh, a world that changes rapidly. We don't have a lot of experience with this. <laughs> No, we do not. I mean, you know, Francis Fukuyama wrote The End of History in the early 90s. I think it was 92 that he published it. The thesis of the book, he posits, is that we've arrived at the basically final form of human governance. This idea of, you know, liberal democracies with its markets, with its sort of capitalism is like, this is this is it. We've figured it out. Now, Fukuyama gets misrepresented a lot. Like, I don't think he was saying that nothing is ever going to happen sure. to challenge the supremacy of that. But he was very comfortable. And I think many people were very comfortable in the finality of that conclusion. And like, there was, there was a euphoria that followed. There's a euphoria that followed this idea of like, here, the global order, the rules-based order with the U.S. at its top is just going to be the thing that continues to exist. We've um, done it, humans. We've done it. We've solved everything. And like from now on, the rest of human, human history is just going to be a slow march towards liberal democracy in places that don't already have it. That's a, It's a romantic version of the story. Um, it is, I think, a... Uh, Obviously not true version of the story, but if you believe it, it's very reassuring, mm -hmm. right? It's very reassuring in the sense that it kind of becomes like this like central axis ar around which your world kind of spins. And when we come to, you know, this war in Ukraine and we learn that there actually are limits on the rules-based order, um, there are places where he won't act according to the set of rules that he said he would act with. I think that also changes you because then you have to do new calculations of saying, okay, if this, if the West is not willing to go to war, and that's probably a very good decision, um, then like, how do I think about my own safety? Because I think it reactivates the notion that we have been at risk this whole time. Um, I think that risk has been invisibilized for you know most of my life, and I'm now coming to this moment, right, where I have to say, oh, no, the risk never went away. I just was living under the illusion that the risk had disappeared. And now I'm faced with the reality of it, which is which is to say I can't go back to my old conception of what the world was like before this war. Is this what the term vibe shift means? And how did vibe shift play into the writing of this piece? <laughs> well, there was a there was a really good piece um, in the cut. I would say in February or so um, about vibe shift. About you know, there, and and basically it was a trend piece. It was someone from the cut um, who interviewed someone whose job it is to basically pre predict oncoming aesthetic and fashion trends, and they, they're sort of like on the larger scale in terms of like how do how we think about the the general aesthetic of the moment. Um, and basically what that piece was saying is, you know, we very subtly find ourselves in very new aesthetic moments, very big differences in fashion moments, whether we're thinking about like the grunge fashion or we're thinking about the, the strange kind of mid-aughts um, fashion and our conception of it. And the piece was saying that there is another vibe shift coming and there's the, the question is, you know, will you survive? That was a central question of the piece was, will you survive the vibe shift? Which is to say, the way that you dress that is very current and very with it suddenly just becomes 
outdated kind of overnight. And the more that I started thinking about this vibe shift idea, because there was quite a bit of response I saw on Twitter to the piece, the vibe shift piece, people saying, well, I don't, you know, I was never with it. I was never, you know, I was never within the vibe. So like, this doesn't apply to me, et cetera. The more that I thought about it was like, you know, to me, like the real vibe shift is this is way bigger beyond taste, beyond aesthetics, beyond fashion, beyond even policy and how we think about um, our relationship to government. Like it seems like so much bigger. It's just it's the sense that it's like the biggest vibe shift of all, which is that the world as we knew it is not going to come back. And we're going to we're going to find ourselves in this new place, this new place of restlessness, where we're kind of governed by a vague notion that we don't know where we're going right now. And that feels to me the most pervasive kind of feeling that I'm having right now. How do we wrap our minds, um, again, as people who aren't used to this just because of uh, how old we are, how do we wrap our minds around that kind of impermanent, unstable world when we don't have a blueprint for it? And one of the things you mentioned is uh, a gentleman named Ulrich Beck's concept of a risk society. How does that kind of help us translate it? Well, I think one thing that is, you know, I tweeted the other day, um, maybe it was a silly tweet, but I really meant it. But every time that there's like a really ridiculous news cycle and I have a lot to contend with, I I would like the German word for my instinct to just like run into like the deepest history books possible. You know, like I would like to know how this connects to Pitt the Younger, you know, in Britain in 1840, whatever. Right. But I think there's something to that, like that the answer is history. Like it is actually, in fact, ahistorical that America would have as long a period of global supremacy as it has in the last 30 years. That is in the grand scheme of things, a blip, right? It's a blip in history. Mm -hmm. It's like not a very significant period of time at all. And then when you look at the ways that that has shaped you, you think, hmm, maybe I've been fooled. Maybe I've been fooled by the stability of that period of time, but that doesn't mean that it's real. And I don't have to treat it as real. I have to sort of remind myself that there are history books for me to dig into so I can understand my place in that march of history. Ulrich Beck offered... Uh, basically an explanation for the period of time that he was living and writing through. Um, in 1986, he wrote Risk Society. And what he was trying to get at is that there is a general ethos of anxiety and, and uncertainty. And you could sort of tell that because everything in that period of time was post, you know, it was like post-war, post-industrial, post-colonial, post-modern, everything was post. His frustration was that post is a negative definition. It only defines what something is not. Right. Um, what post-colonial is, is actually pretty vague. We just know it by what it is not, which is like the era of great sort of colonial powers. And what he wanted to sort of collect all these ideas around was this idea of risk, risk society. So this idea that we have entered an era that we organize ourselves in response to big sort of pervasive and sometimes invisible threats that are around us. And what he was trying to do is get us to think about how society is structured now. And that is that goes from anything from, you know, climate change. Even though he's writing in 1986, you can still sort of understand that, like, your relationship to climate change is governed by place and therefore governed by your risk to it. And therefore, your expectations of government are also governed by, the, by those aspects. But also, there was like a, I guess, risk became very personal to us in the sense that suddenly – our friends were a risk, right? Um, because we lived through a virus and that also implied that 
your friendships reordered based on your friend's risk tolerance. Mm -hmm. I certainly went through this in a period of time where um, I started thinking about my own friends and spending time with people who I had a similar level of risk as. Some people who were very uncomfortable hanging out and I would be like totally understanding, but like, like you know, my attention ended up shifting to people who were more willing to like go for walks outside. Um, similarly, the people I know in my life who were extremely ready to, you know, hang out indoors like two months into the pandemic. I was like, I think my relationship with you has changed because I don't, I no longer trust that you have the same level of risk that I do or risk assessment that I do. That's a way of sort of reordering those relationships. And then you have on a national level where our sort of political alignment has shifted a little bit to stop being so much about you know, voting right or left or voting like on economic benefit versus not, but it's become something of like a, like a voter confidence based on your alignment with that politician's level of, you know, how they think about risk too. Right. Um, there is, it sort of has become like this deeply, just become a very clear framework in terms of how we think about other people. And so I, I was, I returned to risk society a little bit as I was preparing for this and it just like felt like, yeah, this is where we need to go. This is, this is how I want to think about the next little, little period. I want to go back to uh, when this all began, or at least a few weeks maybe after it all began. And just, just 50 years ago, huh? Yeah, exactly. And obviously that was a vibe shift too. And what I kept thinking about when I was reading your essay about how this has changed two years later is that there was that perception maybe a month, two months into the pandemic that, yes, things were going to change and we would come out of this better, you know, like we would realize the impact it was having on the environment and that we didn't need to fly everywhere all the time. We would realize that things were unequal and we'd be better able to take care of our frontline workers. And, you know, even as things were bad, the predominant shift was like, okay, you know, this is going to give us a chance to to wake out of some kind of stupor and, you know, to talk to you about this now when things have seemed to shift dramatically in the other direction. Mm -hmm. It just, it leaves me wondering if there's anywhere else uh, we can go from here. I wish I had a clear answer for you, um, but... It wasn't a very clear question, so that's okay. Well, no... But listen, none of these questions are clear at this moment, right? Like we're sort of trying to grapple our minds around a bunch of, you know, we're trying to grope in the dark here for like a direction of where to go. I think maybe one place to look is what we're asking of our leaders, um, because I, I do think that there is like an interesting crisis that we're having in leadership where there are people who are vying to lead institutions that they are subverting to begin with. And that was the promise of of Donald Trump, the fundamental promise of Donald Trump is that his threat was that he said, these institutions are not working. And he's, it's not like he was running to fix them. He was running to basically confirm that these institutions are decaying. Since Donald Trump's election, there's been plenty of politicians in Canada who've run on the premise of saying, you know what, these institutions are not working. Um, have they been successful? No, but I think that stuff kind of seeps into your conception of your nation and conception, because like every time that you see them having supporters, you get a little bit more and more nihilistic, don't you? Like, I, I, I think that is like an element of what's at work here is that we haven't had anybody willing to articulate 
both the anxiety and a, an optimistic path forward. Mm-hmm. It's like a crisis in leadership and articulation as much as it is a crisis in like within all of us. And it feels like an opportunity cost that we lost as well. Um, and here I'm not necessarily speaking of our leaders on uh, the right side that you just mentioned, but also just the uh, typical left of center leaders who now lead both Canada and the United States and, you know, at some point had a chance to use this political will to actually achieve something, um, but have kind of let it pass in a traditional left of center way. And well, they've done, I think they've done the opposite. You think so? Not not even the opposite. I think they made it worse in Mm. the sense that um, they used the arguments of those people over there are not a part of an us in order to win more votes. I mean, there's no question that um, Justin Trudeau found it very politically useful to talk about unvaccinated people in a certain way um there was that clip that went viral and like yes you know it's it's an unpleasant clip to sort of like bring up but there was that clip where he talks about um, unvaccinated people as those people are racist those people are sexist and misogynist um and it's like what does that get you because you end up governing the society that you sort of planted right and if you seek to confirm those divisions and then govern accordingly, sure, you win government. But at what cost? At what cost are you now governing this divided country? And I'm not saying that, you know, you should sort of be tolerant all the time of everybody who's unvaccinated and spewing uh, misinformation. But I'm saying that there is a higher cost than we previously imagined to simply being comfortable by saying those people are over there and they don't have a place in the political system because they will find a political home and it will not be based on shared values. And then we end up in this place that's more fractured than ever. And then you get to think about your nation as more fractured than it than it ever has been. Um, I think I think that's dangerous. I, do, I really do. I think that's dangerous and like very detrimental to the long-term health of of an idea of a we, whatever that we is, as vague as it was, you know, it was like, Mm -hmm. at least I was comforted by people (laughs) seeking to articulate it. And I'm not even sure that I'm hearing that anymore. I'm not sure that I'm hearing people interested in articulating what a we is right now. Here's a question for you, because we've talked about both the personal and the national aspects of this. Did that attitude trickle up from our own personal risk assessments in our relationships, or did it trickle down to our personal relationships by politicians trying to capitalize on it? Uh, I will take the um, cop-out answer and say both, which is a sense that like, I think it was happening before the pandemic. I think the pandemic accelerated the other direction of it. Um, I think before the pandemic, it was sort of coming from the top down. And then when the pandemic started, it sort of started coming from the bottom up. And then you get this sort of like, you know, distrust sandwich, kind of. And so I think the pressure went both directions. Um, In terms of timeline-wise, you know, it was politicians that started doing that first, but (laughs) people definitely picked up that ball and ran with it. The last thing I want to ask you um, as we try to sum up this entire uh, feeling surrounding humans on the globe at this point in time, I know you're not going to have a specific answer for this, Mm. and you're not going to have... A solution, because I don't think there is one. But when you think about everything we've experienced and felt over the past two years, and then take that and look forward to however uh, the Russia-Ukraine conflict ends, to the 2024 presidential election, perhaps featuring Donald Trump again, and 
And I mean, it's warmer than ever in the Arctic right now as we talk. What do you feel and how do you try to prepare yourself for living in a world where this kind of massive change just now seems to be a, a facet of our everyday lives? Well, boy, thanks for asking a really gentle question to end there, pal. I'm just going to really ease you off into <laughs> the afternoon. Um, okay, let me let me try to wrap my mind around it a little bit. I would say that uh, I've had quite a few responses to the piece that have been like, okay, great piece, man. What's the way forward? And I haven't answered those tweets because I'm like, I don't know if I have an answer for you. I think there's a, there's a real sense that I think first you have to articulate what you're up against, and then you figure out where you go from here. And so this was my attempt at articulating what we're up against, which is that like um, we've spent, I would say, a couple of years, um, and particularly the last few months, figuring out like this momentum towards going back to normal. And then now it feels comforting to me, at least, to come up with this framework where I go, oh, that's not coming back. Like that's not we're, that's not where we're going. I take a bit of comfort in that because I can at least like let go of the illusion um, that it is and let go of sort of looking for the signs that it is. Because I think I've been looking for those signs for two years and they've been sort of getting fewer and fewer and fewer in between. So stop getting your hopes up. Well, I don't, but I don't think it's about that so much as it's about trying to understand what might be coming. Because I think I was sort of evaluating the future based on everything we knew about the past. And I think I'm going to stop doing that a little bit. And that's not necessarily hopeless. It's just that I don't know what hope looks like in this new structure. And I think that's the next part is we get to define it. I'm not sure that it's entirely bad news, right? I'm not, sure, I'm not entirely sure that it's bad news um, for us to think about the fact that you know, COVID now, getting COVID now versus getting COVID at the beginning of the pandemic, like we've learned so much about this illness, mm -hmm. the the ways of international collaboration when it comes to catching a new variant, um, when it comes to therapeutics, when it comes to just addressing it before you even have to go to the hospital. Like we are not the same people we were two years ago. That's a sort of example of a positive change. But what are other signs of hope to look for? And what are other directions to look for? I think that might be something that we spend more time thinking about. It might be worth thinking about without committing to an answer, if you will, without committing to saying this is where it's going and this is these are the reasons for hope and these are the reasons to be hopeless. I think it's maybe neutral. I think we're searching. We're like a we're like a buffering people. Like we're still sort of waiting to load, and I don't know what's going to load. And I think we get to say we get a say in what that is going to be. It could go in any direction. So I don't want to give you hope, but I also want to, don't want to give you hopelessness. Um, I want to spend more time thinking about this. I'm going to let you spend more time thinking about it and writing about it. And when you solve it, you can come <laughs> back on and help us. You got it, man. You bet. Absolutely. Elamine, thank you so much for this. My pleasure. Thank you. Elamine Abdel Mahmoud of BuzzFeed News, of Pop Chat, and once again, Check out his book. It's called Son of Elsewhere. You can pre-order it right now. That was The Big Story. I hope it left you feeling funny. You can find us at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. And you can email us, thebigstorypodcast, yes, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. I wanted to say thank you to so many of you who answered the call and left us reviews on Apple Podcasts. You have managed to chase down the people who believe that I have been bought by Big Oil. I have not been bought by Big Oil. You can find this podcast 
Wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, all the smaller ones you choose, doesn't matter. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk Monday.